Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I had one entrepreneur client who was referred by a friend who showed up and the first time I, I still remember the session with this guy, he came in to work on a flying phobia and he's a good friend. We've stayed in touch. Um, this guy wanted to change. And what I realized now with the gift of hindsight, I know what happened. It was the first time I had met a growth mindset in a client, somebody who was hungry for tools, who wanted to figure out how to like unlock their thinking. So we nixed this flying phobia. Like it was great, very successful. We got him on a plane and then he came back and was like, okay, here's five other things I want to work on. And so that was my first exposure to somebody who was like, treating their mental optimization as like a project, like a to-do list. And I was the guy helping him with that. And I was like, I got to get more clients like this. That's the start of the long story of what became the Shrink for Entrepreneurs. I woke up one day and had all clients on my roster were like that and was like, okay, this is just what I do now. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, That's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Peter, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So funny enough, I interviewed you probably eight, seven years ago, back when we were called Blogcast FM, which seems like a lifetime ago. And uh, I know that you're up to some really incredible things now. And I thought it was a perfect opportunity to bring you back. But before we get into your work, uh, I wanted to start by asking you, what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with? And how did those end up impacting the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? I love it. I love that question. Um, I was raised, I would say that I was raised almost by militant atheists, um, which is probably not the answer that a lot of people uh, would expect. But I'm, I'm from New Zealand originally. And New Zealand is, you know, according to census statistics, one of the most secular nations on the planet. It's up there with the Scandinavian, you know, countries, Sweden and whatnot is very a-religious. Um, and so religion isn't certainly isn't the norm then there, but my parents, are my parents are university professors, um, you know, academics, very, very sort of liberal. And I remember, um, like I have these wacky memories as a, as a kid of, um, at one point there was a, uh, 
It was a Bible, like a Christian Bible education program that was put on by some Christian nonprofit and was put into the public schools in New Zealand, which sounds also shocking to Americans probably, but it was something that you could opt out of. It was basically like, if you want to send your kids to this, you could. And I remember taking the letter home and thinking, oh, for sure, my dad's going to sign this and say, you know, Peter can go to the library instead of going to this this class. Like, he doesn't need to do this. And um, my dad was, my dad responded to me by saying, he said, I want you to go to this class. I want you to learn what they're teaching these people, what they believe, so that you can understand the lies and the nonsense and and get the perspective, like get what these people go through and what they actually believe. And he was like, so you've got to sit in these classes and take notes and I want you to pay attention. So that's the militantness of it. Um, I got, so that, that's kind of where I started. <laughs> well, you know, I love that because... I think that what's fascinating about it is that it was open-minded despite being militant atheists. They're encouraging you to go and understand and find, you know, common ground, because I think that's so important when we don't understand what other people believe, we can't um, have civil discourse. And I think that to me, what's so fascinating is you mentioned New Zealand is this very secular place. And the first thought that came to my mind when you mentioned that was uh, what happened when you guys had your shooting. A, in four days, your gun laws changed. And I wonder what impact you think that has on the fact that, you know, you have a prime minister who literally responds to that by changing gun laws in four days. And we seem to have a shooting every fucking day in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's a certain pragmatism that comes from, you know, when you're when you and this is like I the second half of your last question was sort of how did it like affect you? What was the kind of consequence of that? And I think in some ways it affected me the same way it affects New Zealand in dealing with like nationally a tragedy like that, which is that, you know, when you don't have you don't have like an underlying framework, which is for it is written on a stone tablet or whatever that tells you how to do things like what the rules should be. You have to figure it out in real time. And so there's a more there's a much more kind of pragmatic approach to that which is like oh like this has happened so what are we going to do right there's no other there's no consideration besides the facts besides the reality that you're kind of dealing with in real time and i think that you know i think that for a long time new zealand um like new zealand is new zealand is actually a country with a load of guns in it um there's lots of there's a huge outdoor community there's lots of uh you know hunters and and all of that kind of stuff and um you know, for a long time, we avoided those problems for whatever cultural reasons. And then it happened. We had our first kind of major domestic terror incident. And so we reacted and we didn't have to, we could just deal with the situation at hand and think through from first principles, like what's the right thing to do here? Um, I think there's a sort of a, there's a, there's a clarity and pragmatism that comes from having to figure that out from scratch, which is very much like how that background influenced me. I think that and I see this in a lot of entrepreneurs that I work with as well. It, in some ways, it's a bit of a burden because I, I can see how sometimes the having the moral kind of having like moral morals dictated to you by a faith, taking them on faith and saying, this is how I should live my life. I'm going to just do these things. It's a wonderful relief because you don't really need to think about it too much. You don't have to spend a lot of time thinking, oh, like, how am I supposed to live? What's the next right thing for me? Like I do a lot of work with, um, with entrepreneurs kind of gazing into the existential void. Sometimes I, I, I work with very, very successful people who are trying to figure out, okay, like I've, I've kind of made it, like what's next? 
And for the atheists or the agnostics, the people who don't really have that underlying faith, that's a very difficult question because there isn't a clear, what should I do, right? Like, it's not just kind of written. Like, uh, I've also worked with, for example, um, you know, Mormon entrepreneurs. Everything's very cut and dry for them if they really believe because they believe that their job is to go out and make, they've got a real kind of culture in their religion of prosperity. Their job is to go make out, make a ton of money. If they've made a ton of money, go make a, a ton more money and then like tithe and give back to the church and do good works. But for an atheist entrepreneur, you've actually got to figure out from first principles, like what really matters to me. You've got to, you've got to find out what your values are. You've got to do the work that for religious people was done for them by their, by their religious teachers. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. What are we talking about again? It's been- <laughs> <laughs> I've been known to do that people. Well, I want to come back to the idea of first principles, but um, I want to ask, you know, your parents as college professors, I, you know, I can relate. My dad's a, the college professor. What was the, the narrative about making your way in the world? What did they teach you about education? Because uh, you work with entrepreneurs and, you know, there's a sort of almost narrative in entrepreneurship that education is unnecessary or a formal education is unnecessary, which, you know, maybe there's some truth to that, but I can tell you that having, you know, a degree from a, a well-known university definitely opens doors. Yeah. And there's, you know, they were remarkably pragmatic about that as well. Like their attitude was that like having, you know, having dealt with, um, you know, thousands upon thousands of undergrad students who were kind of directionless and not really taking things very seriously. One of the messages that I remember receiving when I was in high school and kind of thinking about like, what's next and what am I going to do? And, you know, what am I going to go and study if I'm going to do that and all of that stuff was they were very, like, it wasn't just a given that I should just go to university no matter what. They were very clear that going and enrolling in some kind of like marketing, like basic like business administration or marketing or finance or whatever was a bad idea unless I knew really what I wanted to do. They, um, you know, they, like generationally, they saw a transformation in the education system. When they went to school, you know, New Zealand's kind of got this English, you know, we're, we're, we're a, we're a uh, Commonwealth country. So we've got this connection to the, the sort of old school way of doing things where you know people used to go to university to read greek and philosophy right to 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 expose themselves to like the the canon of intellectual thought and then sort of figure out like it was the path that you would go down if you were an intellectual or perhaps you were studying one of these stem topics you know to really become a doctor or really like figure out some branch of engineering but this kind of explosion that we've seen in the last 50 years of people doing these like the, the sort of entry-level requirements being like, you've got to have that communications degree. That stuff, uh, that stuff, I think, in a way, even though they participated in it to some degree, kind of horrified them for their own children. So I definitely got this message of like, use university, like use tertiary education with precision. Um, you know, figure out what it is that you want to do and like have a map and, a, and use it as a path to get to a place, but don't just do the thing I think that, to be honest, the big thing that they reflected on uh, was that like 18-year-olds aren't necessarily always in the best place to be making these long-term decisions. <laughs> like they, they literally, so in New Zealand, we have this great tradition. We call it the big OE, the big overseas experience, which it, it's kind of a tradition in New Zealand for, for you to take a gap year after high school. And I would say, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's like a lot, like it's probably somewhere between 30 and 60%. I don't know which side of 50 it's on, but a lot of young New Zealanders will take a year off and they'll travel and they'll travel for a long time and often work overseas. Like they'll pick up odd jobs. They'll like go bartend in like somewhere in Europe for a little while because New Zealand's a very small country. And so 
like by the time you're in high school, you've seen everything in New Zealand. There's nothing left to see. Um, <laughs> and so you've got to kind of, you got to kind of go out and spread your wings a little bit. And my parents had this, they always told me that the kids who, so you'd get these people entering university and undergraduate who were 18 right out of high school, but then the other half or, or, or whatever percentage were people who were 19 or 20 and had spent a year abroad traveling, kind of living life and having these experiences. And it was like night and day difference. You know, a couple of things. One, that the, the kids who had traveled knew the value of a dollar. Education is much cheaper in New Zealand, but it still costs money. And, you know, people take out student loans. It's not as crazy as it is in the U.S. But they would just have this remarkable difference where, like, having lived in, like, the south of France for a year on doing, like, two bar shifts a week and making it work on, like, however many, you know, however much money they were making and scrounging together beer money kind of thing. When they came in and were paying X number of thousand dollars to be in that philosophy class or that whatever class, the, those kids would be like, all right, I'm here to learn. This is my money I'm spending. I want to return. Whereas the kids who had just graduated from um, high school were still kind of living in that fantasy world where money is a thing that happens to mom and dad's credit card. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, I think the thing that's fascinating to me, and it's funny because um, there's a guy named Rich Kralgard who we had as a guest here who wrote a book called Late Bloomers, and he mentioned the gap here, and he had, you know, his research proved exactly what you're saying, uh, was that these people tended to be far more successful. I think what is intriguing to me, particularly here in the United States and even in Indian culture, is that you know we're asking people to make major life decisions when they've only lived a fraction of their lives based on limited data points. It's like, hey, go to med school, or I want to go to med school, and a person who's never set foot in a hospital or a pre-med class before. Uh, I know, and I, I feel like I just figured it all out a couple of years ago. I'm still working on it. So the idea <laughs> yeah. that I should have I should have been making these decisions, like, God, that long ago, it's, it's frankly horrifying. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, why do you think that that is such a prevalent narrative in, in so many cultures? I mean, it's the... Uh, the cynical part of me wants to say that it's sort of the, the education, the mass educational industry complex that's kind of, you know, making this happen. Like I, I think that there is a, um, like if you look at some of the, the stats around the growth of the administrative like layer in, in particularly in us colleges, it's, yeah. it's pretty scary. It's like a, it's a big industry, you know? And I think, um, I think that these, I mean, and the money as well, like the endowments that some of these schools have, you know, the, the type of cash that's getting thrown around, you know, it's, if you follow the money, things get cynical pretty fast. Um, but I also think it's just the overwhelming kind of weight of tradition coupled with like our, our sort of optimism that we all share, which is that like, you know, that this is, this is the path to kind of improvement, right? Like university used to be finishing school for the elite. I mean, it wasn't something that everybody did, but now, you know, like what's, what's happened culturally is we've sort of set, we've sort of decided collectively as a society that this is something that the middle class should be doing, which is great. Like, you know, we should be getting smarter right fundamentally like i'm on board with big education the idea of improving and getting smarter is good but i think that i think that everybody like fundamentally like everybody wants to go to harvard and that as a mm. cultural force that everybody wants to go to the best school possible is is a big part of like what's responsible uh, uh, for this dynamic and i i think that um I think it's not going to change anytime soon. You know, as much as people talk about reform in this space, there's, you know, at the end of the day, if you're a young person, like if you've got the chance to go or not go, um, you're going to take, you're going to go. Cause it's, it's like, 
it's it's a badge it's a credential and that stuff matters it's a it's a way we can signal to the world that we're valuable and psychology wise there's nothing more important than that so that, i think that makes a perfect segue to the other question i have about this what is the narrative about you know careers and success in general in new zealand and how does that contrast to the united states because i feel here that it's kind of you know relentless ambition almost to the point of diminishing returns yeah, and and so this is a big difference. And like New Zealand's a great place. I was actually just there. I got back uh, three days ago. Um, I just spent three months in New Zealand, which was which was awesome, lovely. It's um, it's an amazing place to be, especially because it's COVID free right now, which has been really nice. But but it does have um, some issues. And I found as an entrepreneur and somebody who's been known to harbor a few ambitions himself, I found it to be a little bit. Um, a little bit small and a little bit um, stifling. So New Zealand, New Zealand has this uh, this dynamic that's people that I'm sure somebody's mentioned it on the show before because it's in other countries too called tall poppy syndrome. Metaphor being the the poppy that the flower that grows the tallest is the first to get cut down because it sticks out from from all of the rest. I think there's like a, I don't know why we call it tall poppy. There's a, there's another one about nails getting hammered or the nail that sticks out gets the hammer kind of thing. But basically New Zealand is a very egalitarian place where like high degrees of success are not necessarily celebrated. Um, culturally, if you're driving down main street in a Ferrari in New Zealand, people are more likely to go to think what an asshole than they are to think, <laughs> Oh my God, like I, that person must have, that, that, there goes a real job creator. I'd love to, like, take a look to me. That's your future. You know, there's, there's not so much of that. Um, I mean, it's a very small country. It's, it's, it's pretty homogenous. Um, there's, you know, there's, it's just under 5 million people, I think. And so, you know, if you're like New Zealand has a major problem with brain drain, which is like a lot of the best and brightest young New Zealanders tend to move abroad for bigger career opportunities to the extent that there's actually allegedly there's about a million of them living overseas um, or there were prior to 2020 when a lot came home. Um, funny that. But um, but yeah, there's a lot of high performing New Zealanders who go and and work in you know the UK and the US in particular where they can pursue bigger and better opportunities. And I'm one of them. Frankly, the, the, there's a sort of an overseas Kiwi mafia, like in New York, there's an entrepreneurial kind of group of New Zealanders that meet up. And some of these people are some of the most successful, uh, powerful people, creatives, entrepreneurs, and even executives who are like running some of the biggest companies in America, but they're, they're, they're all kind of Kiwis. And we, we have like yeah. a, we have a little network that we can, we can get things done, get favors done. If you're in the Kiwi, Kiwi entrepreneur mafia. <laughs> Do you think that, People in New Zealand are happier as a byproduct of this than people in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think New Zealand is an easy place to be happy. Like, I, I'm trying to thread the needle here by, like, I'm an immigrant to the U.S. I live in the United States, I've, and I've been here for 10 years, so I've kind of made my choice, and I'm happy in the U.S., but I don't think I'm like every New Zealander. I would say that New Zealand is... So there's a... There's another little saying that we have in New Zealand for entrepreneurs, which is that we call, we talk about the three B's, which are uh, beach house. We call it the Kiwi slang for beach house is a batch. Don't ask me why, but beach house, BMW, and boat. And once you have the three B's, it's like you're done. That's the idea. You get the three B's, you're, you're finished. You can stop. You can retire at that point, which is like 
a BMW isn't even that nice of a car, right? Like, I mean, they're pretty nice, but, but <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, they're okay. But that sort of tells you, you know, what, what it, what you can look for, like what people are looking for in New Zealand. So I would say that if you're somebody who, you know, if you're somebody who's kind of going to find a, a good job and, and work away at it and get the gold watch and chill and maybe have some fun hobbies and side projects and stuff like that, there's nowhere better in the world to live. Like, frankly, if I was a dentist or mm. if I was a teacher or a police officer or, you know, pretty much anything other than an entrepreneur, I would want to live in New Zealand. And I would live in New Zealand because life is better. You've got universal healthcare. You know, you've got this this amazing sort of egalitarian kind of li- life where the, with a broad middle class, amazing social benefits, the weather's good, nature's beautiful, like life is good. The problem is that you can't, um, there's just not as much opportunity for the people who are like in it to win it. And so, you know, like the U.S. is a, the U.S. is, is, is there's no better place in the world to be an entrepreneur and to be building stuff. Um, you know, access to opportunity, access to markets, being able to test big ideas, take big swings. You know, that stuff doesn't happen in New Zealand as much. I, I would love if it could. I'm very interested in, you know, one of my, my hopes for the future is to figure out how to foster more entrepreneurship with, with people in New Zealand. Um, but, but yeah, that's kind of the, those are the, I guess the pros and the pros of both countries. Yeah. By the way, did you end up doing the gap here as well? I did. Yeah, yeah, I totally did. So, um, yeah, did lots of travel and it definitely, you know, definitely changed the way that I approach my tertiary education in, in a major way. Yeah. What did, what are the key sort of takeaways and, and life lessons you got from your time of traveling? Oh, geez, that's a good question. I haven't thought about it for a while. Um, I mean, I had a weird one time trying to think things that I key takeaways and lessons. I mean, one of the things, one of the things that I, that you figure out when you travel is like, you get comfortable with paradoxically comfortable with spending time on your own, right? Like being able to, and that's something a lot of people are uncomfortable with, like really to just be able to be on your own, being a tourist on your own is a very strange experience going and seeing great, amazing things, but having no one to share them with. And it's funny because it really, um, there's something quite like Zen and meditative about that experience because it really forces you like a lot of stuff that people do when they travel is stuff that they're really doing because somebody else wants to do it. Right. Like, honestly, if you're listening to this, like, and you've been to an art gallery while traveling, like how much did you really, did you really want to be there? Like, like if you, if you had a free day where you had no expectations on you whatsoever, would you wake up and go to that art gallery? So like traveling on your own, you start to really get this kind of internal clarity of like, well, what do I really want to do? Um, and, and so that's the discomfort of that and figuring out how to enjoy yourself by yourself is, is quite interesting. And then the other side of it, like the paradox of it is one thing I got really good at was kind of being an extrovert and connecting with other people. Because what I found is when I asked myself that question of like, what do I want to do? what do I really want to do? Cause I, I was just checking stuff off like somebody else's bucket list was uh, I wanted to be around other people. So traveling by yourself is a really great, uh, is a really great way to meet other people. Um, and that's the the coolest thing, like probably some of my happiest memories in the, in my entire life are like just the fun times shared by 
that backpacker culture, right? Like people like the the crazy Australians and they're the craziest and the Germans and the <laughs> yeah. like the, the folks who hang out at these like low cost backpacker places like all around the world and everybody's doing the same thing you are, which is they're there to hang out, supposedly see the sites, but they're also discovering that what's really fun about being on your own is is actually connecting with others. And so like that, you know, a lot of, um, I met an entrepreneur years ago, um, who had built this like billion dollar sales, um, outsourcing empire by basically hiring backpackers because he realized that, um, that these people become very extroverted, very fast. Like anyone who can kind of live that life gets really good at connecting with other people and they make great salespeople. And I think that, I think that I took on some of that as well. So, yeah. Well, you're right about the Australians. I remember meeting two Australian guys uh, at, the, you know, at a hostel in Amsterdam. And I think it was eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning. They basically said, we're going to go over to the Heineken Museum at nine o'clock in the morning. It was just pretty much, you know, drinking beer from morning until evening. I, Australia. I'm half Australian. My dad was born in Australia. Um, and New Zealand and Australia kind of has like you can live in either country if you're a citizen of one. Um, so we're we're very much like trans Tasman Ocean Tasman Sea brothers. Um, but uh, they're absolute nutcases. Like there's just something I don't know what it is about their culture, but they go hard. Um, you got You got to respect. <laughs> they they go hard. They hit the the Heineken Museum at nine in the morning. That's a very Australian <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> uh, well, so what led to you becoming the shrink from entrepreneurs? Like you come back from, uh, you know, your gap here and how did you discover that this is what you wanted to do? Yeah. So yeah, that it's very much relates to this idea of not knowing what the hell, like this unreasonable expectation we have on our 18 year olds to know what they should do with their lives. When I was at high school, I was really interested in the film industry, which was blowing up um, in New Zealand at the time. Like I think Lord of the Rings, trying to think timeline wise, maybe. No, must have been after then. But the this film industry was starting to become a thing. And I had a lot of friends whose parents worked in it. And so had been exposed a little bit to it. And um, that was what I was interested in. But um, basically, very long story short, I also started to get vaguely interested in psychology because when I was in high school, I was a bit of a wallflower and I, I kind of had trouble connecting with people and understanding other people really well. Like I, like my just fellow kids, right? Like they, they were a mystery to me. I had friends. I wasn't like some crazy loner, but I just, I, I wanted to get why I didn't connect with people better. And I started reading a little bit about, um, I was a bit of a dork. Answers were in books for me. Um, and I knew that at a young age. And I started reading a little bit about like, the psychology of like rapport and persuasion and interpersonal communication and just finding it really fascinating. Um, and I started also hanging out online and these like very early stage kind of pre like internet, I mean, not pre-internet, but internet forums back before when that was like a really fringe thing to do. And, and, um, the first exposure I had to business was I actually ended up working. I actually ended up like volunteering with a, on this website that, that grew into one of the largest like alt therapy, like portals and sort of communities on the internet. Um, so we like alternative modalities for therapy, this, 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 website became this massive forum for it and we had like seven thousand active members who were like psychotherapists and counselors and and stuff like that who were on this platform and i was just in it to learn about psychology like i was just fascinated by all of this stuff so i kind of had this weird transition that occurred where i was like oh i'm going to try to work in the film industry i love movies i want to do that stuff and then as i kind of grew up and 
and got out of school and started traveling, I just went down this rabbit hole of wanting to learn about how people worked. And I remember even explaining to my parents, I was like, yeah, yeah, because the psychology stuff's going to help me with the film stuff. But then I just got caught up in this internet community. And then we kind of built this like website out of it. The website ended up being sold, um, which was like, we never figured out how to monetize it. But it makes me sad because we had like over a million unique visitors you know, like it was like a really big deal, this this back then, um, and uh, and so eventually, I I started actually, I started actually doubling down on the psychology thing and started. That was my tertiary education. Like I I started, I had a very unusual approach to it. I'm doing a bad job at telling the story, but basically, this this website that me and a friend had created started writing reviews of training workshops in this in this therapy, like this alternate therapy modality space. And we had crazy SEO juice back in the early days of the internet. And we our reviews would make or break some of these training companies. Like we would send so many customers their way if we had a positive review. So I started being like I started getting free uh free sort of seats on some of these workshops where I would go and sit with these like clinical psychologists who were doing kind of post post postgraduate education, learning different therapy modalities, like from the, you know, like hypnotherapy workshops from the ex professor of psychology at Stanford and stuff like that. And um, th- this all happened because like I was attending all of these just because I understood how the internet worked and had built this website and was kind of this, like, we were like this kingmaker in this weird alternative space. And so that was really the beginning of me, of me kind of getting into the psychology stuff. And eventually I actually went through and did all of the training to become a, you know, a psychotherapist in New Zealand. And so my first business business, like the website wasn't a business, it was just a website. I wish I had figured out how to make it a business. But my first business was a brick and mortar therapy practice down the road from where I grew up in Auckland, New Zealand, where I started working with, um, I started working with clients for basically anything. Like I was, I was doing a lot of, I, my first customers came from uh, referrals from primary care physicians for things like anxiety and depression and addictions and that sort of stuff. And I became, I started working with entrepreneurs almost by accident. I got a, uh, I had one entrepreneur client who was referred by a friend who showed up and the first time I, I still remember the session with this guy, he came in to work on a flying phobia and he's a good friend. We've stayed in touch. Um, and it was just a revelation to me because I was really struggling with, I mean, one thing like running my own business, cause I had no idea what I was doing. And, and I was also struggling with the work, like clinical work, that sort of stuff is, it's really tough, right? Like it's, it's, it's a grind and it's, you're talking to people who are, who, who are there cause they want to change, but they don't really want to change. And that's exhausting. But mm-hmm. this guy wanted to change. And what I realized now with the gift of hindsight, I know what happened. It was the first time I had met a growth mindset in a client, somebody who was hungry for tools, who wanted to figure out how to like unlock their thinking. So we, we, we nixed this flying phobia. Like it was great, very successful. We got him on a plane and then he came back and was like, okay, here's five other things I want to work on. And so that was my first exposure to somebody who was like, treating their mental optimization as like a project, like a to-do list. And I was the guy helping him with that. And I was like, I got to get more clients like this. And, uh, and that was really the beginning of, of kind of what turned into, like that's the start of the long story of what became the Shrink for Entrepreneurs. I, 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 w- I woke up one day and had 
all clients on my roster were like that and was like, okay, this is just what I do now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, I think this is a perfect time to talk specifically about the sort of psychology of, of entrepreneurship, because I remember um, I, I wrote this post about the things I would do differently if I started my business today, which I'm sure every one of us who's done, started a business has a list like a mile long of things we would do differently. Um, and I remember one of the sections I wrote was about managing your psychology and why it was uh, not only one of the most important, but one of the most difficult. Sam Altman actually has this really interesting quote in the Y Combinator 
Your Startup School podcast where he tells people, he said, you know, people think everything gets better when you become more successful. He said, but it actually becomes worse uh, because, you know, <laughs> the highs are so high and the lows are so low. And I, I saw it firsthand when I started to, you know, have any level of success because like when, you know, things go away, you know, I had a year where I went from, you know, being a Wall Street Journal bestselling author to selling at a conference to suddenly finding myself, you know, in shambles and wondering if we were going to be out of business six months later. And, you know, when I saw a therapist, she said, you know, you just went from this epic high to this epic low. Uh, so when people come into you, like, what are the the problems you've seen? You know, how you diagnose them? Because I know that, you know, even in Silicon Valley, we have this founder depression issue because so often your identity and your work becomes so intertwined. You know, your, your self-worth is almost defined by the results that you're producing, even though you know that you shouldn't. And so how do you even deal with that aspect of this? Because I know that this is not just a matter of execution. We know what to do, right? We know, okay, we have tactics, we have you know things to do. Um, yet psychology often is one of those things that keeps so many people from doing what they want to do. Yes, I think, um, <clears throat> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big old can of worms. I mean, I think yeah. this is, and this is basically what I sort of ended up specializing in doing. I guess I should, before I answer this question, contextualize my expertise on it by finishing the story in, in 10 seconds, which is like, yeah, I mean, I, you know, that, that what I just described was 12 years ago. And since then I've done 10,000 hours more, more working with, you know, some of the best and brightest, you know, it's grown into, I moved to the U S I built a brand online as the shrink for entrepreneurs that really exploded as a sort of a tagline and really resonated with a lot of people. And I started working with these, these tech founders, you know, I've, I've, I've now got a client roster that's got a few billion in market capitalization across it. You know, I've seen clients go from an idea to a billion dollar valuation, seeing clients take a company public. Um, um, and uh, it's, you know, it's been the world's greatest MBA that I was sort of paid to take because I was the guy kind of behind the curtain as a confidant advise, and advisor to the founders, the CEOs of these things. And I think that I mean, first of all, I think that every like every entrepreneur is atypical. I struggle so much with the question of like, well, what do they struggle with? Because it's all it's all very different. And to be playing at the kind of level that we're talking about, I think that at some level, everyone's motivation is pathological. Like <laughs> I don't, I don't know anyone who's got, I mean, it's funny, right? Like this is the whole, this is the whole paradox of mental health. Like what is mental health really? Like mental health is just like not sticking out. It's, you know, like you're mentally healthy if you can function in society and if you're kind of enough like everybody else that it's like, okay, and you don't really intimidate us too much. But if you're standing on a street corner and you're frothing at the mouth, like that's bad and you need treatment, right? Like if you're going to hurt yourself and others, obviously I don't mean to be facetious, like that is really bad. I'm not kidding. And you do need treatment. For entrepreneurs, is it, you know, is it healthy? Is it good? Are they happy? Uh I've worked with people who have had them in a drive to build a billion dollar company. And I can tell you that they're not doing it just because of what they say in the press releases, the impact, you know, the, the, the size of the, the size of the, the, the change they want to make the dent in the universe to make the world a better place. I think that some part of them believes that too, but I think, but I know that human psychology is complex, right? We have the rational sort of neocortical front part of our brain that that comes up with the stuff and we believe it and it is real, which is like, I'm doing this because like I'm Bill, Bill Gates is doing it because he believes that the world would be an amazing place if there was a personal computer in every home. 
he's also the most competitive motherfucker in the world, <laughs> right? Who's got like a chip on his shoulder about proving something to somebody somewhere. And that, that tend, it tends to be something like that with almost every entrepreneur who achieves those wild levels of success that we read about it in Business Insider and Inc. Magazine and stuff like that. Like those folks, um, and they're, you know, they're, there's, there's a lot of us out there, you know, I, I can relate to it to some degree. They've got, they've got a drive. They've got a reason, whether it's proving it to somebody, you know, silencing a critic, showing that they're worthy, whatever it might be, or it could just be straight competition. I've, I've worked with some entrepreneurs where they're just some of the most competitive people ever, whether you're playing chess or tennis, but for them, they've kind of found, they've played lots of different games in life. And then they've found this one game that never ends called business. And it's like the score never stops counting up. You can keep on winning and winning and winning and winning. And that's really fun too. So there's always, there's always something a bit weird because for the exact reason that you mentioned that when you achieve these levels of success, these kind of high levels of success, your problems don't go away. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, it's one of the thing that the, the the naive and inexperienced like entrepreneurs, the people who wish they were entrepreneurs, really don't understand. And you see it like in the tech scene with you know this kind of bizarre attitude of like, oh, I'm gonna I've, I've got this idea for an app or a company, and I'm gonna go raise money, and then I'll have made it right. And it's mm. like take getting investors to write you a check is just inviting problems into your life. Um, and it can be a great thing. Like, you know, the other side of this is that, that sometimes the way that we're, I wouldn't say that we're the happiest, but I would say that sometimes the most fulfilling ways to live our lives are to consciously, you know, and with volition choose to engage and struggle that we think is meaningful. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs who are kind of, they're not happy, but they're, they've got like a monk sense of purpose and they're like, this is what I've chosen. This is what I want to grapple with. I think that's about as good as it is, but it is a grapple. There's no like, like I've also worked with, I've worked with entrepreneurs who have sold their companies, like a big liquidity event where you get a check, you get to go home, you cash your check and it's like a hundred million dollars or whatever. That, that genuinely is a good time, but it only lasts for a few months before something in those, like the brain that you've got to have to get to the point that you can sell a company for that true FU money, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, you're not going to be the kind of person who will actually be able to enjoy it. I've never met an entrepreneur like that who's genuinely been able to be like, yep, now I'm going to retire. Like I'm 35, <laughs> 40, whatever. Now I'm done. They do yeah. it for like six months, maybe maybe three and then they're like, well, I've got some ideas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, there's so many places you can go with this. Like, I mean, I've, I've interviewed uh, this guy, Daniel Lieberman, who wrote a book on dopamine. And, you know, we talked about the hedonic treadmill. And, you know, I think what happens when that happens is the goalposts just get moving. I think it was Naval Ravikant who told me, he said, yeah, he's like, you make $10 million, you know, at any place you're rich. But he said in San Francisco, you cash out $10 million, your neighbor has 100, so you feel poor. Because um, your, your basis for comparison and your reference group keeps changing. And totally. The other thing you mentioned, you know, problems. And I, I remember I, I'd been writing about this. I said, you know, you think that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have more problems than he did when Facebook started or when it was still, you know, the 100,000 users. Now he's having to deal with regulatory issues, testifying in front of Congress, being, you know, resp- held responsible for screwing up an election. I mean, these are things that you realize you're like, wait a minute. OK, this is not a problem for your life by any stretch of the imagination. No, and it never ends. And so you've, in a way, like, 
you know, Steve Jobs had this great quote in one of the rare interviews that he did. I think it was like the All Things Digital Conference or something back in the day yeah. where he was like, you know, you've got to really love it. Um, you've got to love it because it gets hard. You've got to have that passion for when it's hard. You've still, you've got to love it so much that you still want to come to work and do it. And I would say like, I would, I would, that's a lovely soundbite. I actually think it's, it's, it's not wrong, but it's incomplete. I think mm-hmm. that the people who I've seen succeed the most as entrepreneurs um, are the people who love the, they love the, like the struggle. They love the fight. Right. Like, and I think that I don't know anything about Mark Zuckerberg's psychology. Like I, you know, I look forward to the Walter Isaacson biography of him, like at some point in the future, so we can all learn about it. But I suspect that there's a part of him behind that robotic kind of shiny complexion in front of Congress is like, yeah, look Mm -hmm. at them asking me questions. Like, I think he enjoys the fact there's some part of him that must enjoy the fight at that point. Um, and I think I, like that's that's sort of what it takes to build that kind of a company. Now, yeah. the truth is most people listening to this, they don't want to build the next Facebook. They don't want to like Facebook's not even a billion dollar company, right? Like it's it's way beyond that. So I don't know what their market cap is, but it's many, many billions. So, you know, most people most people who 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 are entrepreneurs what they really want to build is is freedom. They want lifestyle. They want to be able to not have to worry about anything. I think that the the reason that you and I are talking about this is that we both know that you have to have a lot of worries to get to the point that you don't really have to worry about anything, and that <laughs> that that uh, it's it's hard to find that like it's hard to find that sweet spot of like like even just having a business that pays you a million bucks a year. There's going to be some headaches there. It's really hard to get something like that purely on autopilot. And even if you can, and it just puts money in your pocket, like so you can just sit by the pool, maybe it does that this month or this year, but will it do it next year? Like a lot of people who had businesses like that got wiped out last year in 2020. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, hell, a lot of the people that started blogs and you know online businesses when you, I, you and I did are no longer around. Totally. And, and I think that like to, to sum it all up, I don't think that there's anything that's created more suffering for people, for specifically for people who have great lives, who are very privileged, who have it all. And if you're listening to this, you're one of them, right? Like people who, who overall have it pretty good. There's nothing that creates more suffering than the desire they have to erase all suffering, to get rid of all struggle, to have absolute freedom and be on easy street, right? Like that, if that's why you're going to trying to create a business, um, if that's what you're aiming for, like, and you're going to struggle and it's going to hurt and it's, it's, it's not going to, it's, it's not going to work out. You've got to, I think entrepreneurs who accept that like, oh, there's an aspect to like any business that is going to be difficult and is going to feel like work and struggle. I'm going to have to be disciplined. I'm going to have to execute and so on. Then you can really have something. But mm-hmm. the, this, this notion of like, I just want to feel good all the time and I never want to hurt and I never want to work and I never want to struggle. I never want to suffer. That's really trying to, you know, have your cake and eat it too. And it, it doesn't work. And uh, yeah, it causes a lot of, it causes a lot of problems, but it's that promise that's used by like the self-help industry, the, the business in a box business opportunity industry to sell, you know, probably billions of dollars a year of like get rich quick schemes and things like that, because people want to believe they can just find a money printing machine and chill. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny you say that because I, I remember my mentor, Greg, he said, you know, something about getting whatever it is you want is going to suck. He said, you know, yeah, and I remember he said, you know, for every intention you have, write down the anti-intention. He said, you want a TV show? Great. Guess what? He's like, you can't go to dinner anymore without being bothered by people. And I, I think nobody ever thinks about that sort of darker side of getting what they want, like that something will suck about this. Well, I think, I mean, another way, yeah, exactly. Another way of looking at it is there's nothing of substance or lasting value that's been created by anybody, anywhere, anytime that didn't require the expenditure of effort and the experience of discomfort. Mm. Wow. You, you, so, you, you gotta, you gotta put something in to get something out. Like there's no, and I think people are trying to look for the shortcut around that, but at the end of the day, you gotta like, I'm not like my, my dad growing up has the same. I, if my team had this podcast, they'll kill me. Cause I say it to, to the team at commit action every, like every week, which is like, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. It's mm-hmm. like this fundamental rule of human nature and especially capitalism. If it were that easy, everyone would be doing it. And if everyone's doing it, it's massively competitive, which makes it difficult. Yeah. Well, so before we get to commit to action, I, I had to ask about something you just said. Uh, I'm in the process of putting together uh, this series called The Cult of Self-Improvement or The Cult of Personal Development, where I'm talking to people who've ended up in personal development cults. You as a therapist, you you alluded to sort of self-help selling us all these sort of crazy ideas. And I, you know, I... I've gained value from self-help, but it's funny when I interviewed Rick Ross, you know, the cult deprogramming expert, he actually said, you know, most of these people would be better off going to therapy than self-help as somebody who is a licensed clinical therapist. What do you make of all that? Because I feel like, you know, people are often, you know, investing in self-improvement to the point where it isn't actually improving their life, but it just becomes their life. Like it becomes the, you know, the end rather than the means. I have to clarify before I answer this question that I'm 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 just a glorified business consultant here in the okay. US. My my licensing and, and all of that, like I was a in, in New Zealand lapsed a long time ago. When I moved to the US and, and started building up my practice here, I was I was actually growing so quickly that I kind of looked at the requirements to get to 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 go through all of that again in the new environment and was like, uh, I think I'm just gonna give business advice and start referring out the really nitty-gritty psychological stuff. Fair um enough. Because uh, that that's just the the business was. I mean, I, uh, I we're done with my origin story. But by, when I moved to the U.S., I actually had a full time roster of U.S. clients I was working with over the phone. So it, it just kind of I just jumped in. I didn't have to start from scratch here. So mm-hmm. um, so yeah, total charlatan, not a uh, license. But let me ask you. Let, let me answer that question like a pro. I <laughs> I think that um, yeah I. I think like the self-development industry exists primarily like the point of, of most personal development and self-help is to sell more personal development and self-help. And I think that, I think that a lot of people are, are kind of lost on that. Now there's a playbook for doing this and I, I'm not saying that everyone does this. There's some amazing, like, believe me, I've read all the books. There's some, there's some self-help books and stuff that have changed my life that have had really genuinely interesting ideas in them uh, that are new and valuable. Um, but there is an underside to the, the, the sort of a CD underbelly to the industry. And it, a lot of it happens, you know, with these big events, these big conferences that they bring people in. If you're ever in a place where people are saying like, now go to the back of the room, bring out your credit card and that type of stuff. Like, you're starting to get into that territory where what's going on is that they're manufacturing epiphanies. And this is something that you can do if you understand how psychology works. 
um, and some of these operators are really good at this stuff. You can you can make people feel stuff and have the experience in the moment of like what feels like a breakthrough, and then you can use that to say like, now don't you want more of that? But uh, but the problem is that those epiphanies in real time don't translate into like long term lasting change. And this is the thing about that industry that's really kind of dodgy is like if you go and follow up with the people who are at these workshops who are having the cathartic moments of breakdown, they're crying, they're calling people, they're like, this has changed my life, I've released my trauma, I've done all of this stuff. You know, we can't, but you, you might know them at an individual level so you can kind of follow up in your personal life. Like just go and track how they do, like check in a month later and a month after that and six months later and notice if much at all changes about their life. Because it's really difficult to create lasting change. And most real lasting change happens because of execution. It happens because of incremental improvements that somebody makes in their life in that, that require willpower and effort that slowly start to kind of change their behavior that builds inertia and momentum. And then the new habits take hold and they really transform. It doesn't happen in a weekend workshop where they cry and dance about and like do all the stuff. And I think that disconnect is, um, that's, 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 yeah, that's what's, that's what doesn't work about that industry. There's a lot of it that, and a good therapist will, will be there every week guiding you to make the real changes, doing the work that's uncomfortable that doesn't feel great in the moment. Whereas mm-hmm. a lot of self-help is like, it's really about that catharsis and the endorphins that come afterwards that loosen up the wallet for the next workshop. Well, thank you because you just gave me like an entire segment for my book that I'm working on, <laughs> which is why I asked the question that it was brilliant. Uh, so I think that that makes a perfect segue to talking about commit action. I mean, how do you, uh, like how did um, commit action evolve from being the shrink from entrepreneurs? Yeah, so shrink for entrepreneurs was my my kind of tagline for my my private therapy practice, my consulting business that I you know that I've spent the last I still do by the way like I still I I probably spend about I do about three to five hours a week with clients, most of whom have just been with me for so long, and I've learned so much from and continue to that I you know I really want to keep on working with them and kind of finishing what we started, but um. Along the way, I, you know, I moved, I went from living in New Zealand and Australia to moving to New York City, you know, building this practice, getting to work with some of the, you know, the founders of these incredible VC backed technology companies. And I started to kind of realize like, oh, I'm not like them. Like I'm building something like my, I'm selling my time for money, you know, for a lot of money, which was great. Um, it was a great little business, but I sort of, when I, when I had a full roster of these amazing clients, I sort of did that thing that a lot of people do. You know, we were talking about entrepreneurs like moving the goalposts. It was all I wanted for a long time was that full-time business, just doing that, doing those consults. As soon as I got it, I was like, oh, can I do this for the next five years, let alone 10? And I realized I wanted to do something, like I wanted to do something that that was more entrepreneurial, that kind of scaled. And I've always defined true entrepreneurship as building something bigger than yourself, right? Like like a doctor is not an entrepreneur until they like retire themselves from practicing medicine and open up multiple practices and hire the doctors and that's entrepreneurship, right? So, so for me, the idea for Commit Action came, came when I started thinking, well, what else can I do? And I had all of these, I was a blogger, you and I know each other from the, the early days of that kind of internet community and scene. And I had all of these subscribers who were, you know, entrepreneurs and small business owners who weren't working with me as clients, but 
you know, maybe could have, or I was a bit expensive or whatever. And so I, I did what every smart entrepreneur does, I think, which is I, I talked to them and I tried to find out like what they were struggling with. And what I found was that a lot of, like probably one of the biggest obstacles that a lot of people have is staying focused, staying on track, the project of like diligence and sort of like the ongoing struggle of showing up to work on your business every day as kind of the best version of us of yourself. Cause I think every business owner has like a high watermark of like that random Tuesday, like last year or last month or hopefully last week where you just like were in the zone and you crushed all this work. And it wasn't just like hard work. You also did really courageous things. Like you sent an email with like a pitch to someone that was really well written and they responded back and you got tons of business out of it. And do you know what I mean? Like just really crushing it. And I think everyone has this internal sense of what they're capable of, but they struggle to get there on a daily basis. And in fact, for you know myself included, for many of us, like those days are few and far between. And so the idea for Commit Action came about when I was like, well, this is kind of what I do with my clients. Like any kind of coach, any kind of, but any decent coach is going to help people show up and execute and be that best version of themselves possible. And I kind of realized, well, you don't need like the existential void gazing that I do with my clients, the stuff we've just talked about, like helping people who've sold a company figure out what the purpose of their life is in the absence of religious moral responsibility and, you know, how to chart their course in that sea of ambiguity while they're sitting on a hundred million dollars in cash, that type of problem. You know, most people don't struggle with that stuff. What if, what if we didn't need any of that, but we just took the idea of just the part of coaching about like execution and kind of distilled it. And so the original vision for Commit Action, which is still what we have today, is a distillation of just the purest, most essential part of coaching that really works um, and that also happens to be scientifically, like empirically validated to show that it really helps people change behavior and, and and achieve better results. And that is accountability coaching. Mm-hmm. So that was the original hypothesis of like, wow, like this is what people need because building building a business, going and doing your own thing is by definition a very isolating activity. And there's a problem there, which is that humans are social primates. We're hardwired to be the best version of ourselves when we know that other monkeys are watching where we have a hundred million years of evolutionary biological conditioning to make us in the zone when we're a part of a game that other monkeys are playing, where they're kind of respecting us if we win and, you know, like they gently like chiding us if we don't. And a lot of entrepreneurs jump into entrepreneurship and then, and, and they jump into a, a total vacuum, a sea of isolation, a lack of accountability. And then they wonder why all of their productivity, best practices and habits just go out the window. And the answer is because, you know, they, there's not a single person on earth who knows if they crushed it last week or if they just phoned it in and screwed around. And so we built this, the first ever version of Commit Action, the sort of alpha version was, what if we took somebody and just trained them in like a, like I kind of built out like an accountability kind of methodology. And just once a week, they phone up an entrepreneur and they check in on how they're doing and ask them what they want to do in the next seven days and kind of hold them accountable to doing that and make that like a weekly check-in, a ritual. And so that was that's where it started. 
Uh, well, I mean, I, I can speak, you know, volumes about the power of this because even, you know, I, I noticed when my mentor, Greg Hartle took me on same thing every week we would meet and those meetings sometimes were excruciating because, you know, I remember when he gave a speech at our conference, people was like, oh, he's this, you know, highly motivational, exciting you know, person to be around. I was like, yeah, no, Greg basically rips me a new asshole every week. Um, you know, we'll look at metrics. But what I saw was that in the span of six months, we went from $600 in the bank to hundred grand in the bank and a Wall Street Journal bestselling book. So I recognize the power of, of having somebody hold you accountable. And so, yeah, I mean, you write a book with a publisher, they're holding you accountable. And so that to me is always one of those things that I, somebody is always either formally or informally holding you accountable in some way or another. And I think as a byproduct of that, one of, and I'm curious, you know, for your clients, if you've seen this, I have learned to hold myself accountable much more effectively as a result of having other people hold me accountable. Yeah. I mean, I think that like it's a lot of people have it. It's great that you had it. And and I think that the folks who don't, don't realize what they're missing. Like there's so, that's what I learned that there's, there's so many entrepreneurs who like are waking up every day, comparing themselves to Elon Musk, right? Like they're like, this guy's running like five companies. They have multi-billion dollar market caps, um, one of the wealthiest people in, in the country right now. I'm just trying to run one company and get it up to the point that it can pay me like a six-figure salary, you know, like consistently and reliably. And I can kind of like live a good life and provide for my family. What the hell's wrong with me? Why can't I do it? Like, is he really that different to me? What they don't see is that Elon is in the center of a web, just like you were in some ways, except his is even bigger, of key relationships. He's got his boards, right, of multiple companies that he's fundamentally accountable to. He's got advisors, coaches, mentors, like laterally off to the side. Down below him with accountability from the bottom up, he's got executive teams reporting in, you know, seeking decisions and advice from him, which is also a form of accountability. So this guy wakes up, he's got executive assistants up the wazoo, he wakes up and he's accountable and in the zone. He just has to show up and react to stuff. That's how he's able to do it all. Like he's in a fundamentally different position than an entrepreneur who's sitting in their PJs in their basement, working away on a laptop to build like a, you know, to build a new website for their business, mm -hmm. not talking to anyone anywhere. And so the idea for commit action is like, you know, is to give people access to that lifeline of accountability. And we believe that you should have it in as many places as possible. Like many of our most successful customers actually have like other coaches and consultants and even create little mastermind groups with other peers, you know, friends of theirs who have companies in similar industries where they also hold each other accountable. What we give them is like the professional objective accountability that never kind of goes away. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's a weekly call with a dedicated accountability coach. That's like having someone on your team whose sole job is keeping you on track project managing your most important growth driving projects in your business and um and building out like everything from a to-do list to a calendar of like appointments that you make to sit down and do work right like we're so good at you and i showed up to this i was two minutes late but you and i showed up to this meeting more or less to record this interview because we were accountable to each other if you didn't show up i'd have been pissed if i didn't show up you would have been pissed and so we showed up but why is it that when we make, like when we have plans to work and to do the mo more important work than any kind of meeting we might take, we blow ourselves off all the time, off, we, <laughs> we blow ourselves off. We don't show up for ourselves. And so that's what objective external accountability does is it helps people set appointments with themselves to really get stuff done. Wow. 
Well, I mean, this has been amazing. So I know that um, you've put together a special offer for our listeners uh, to you know work with you guys. Um, can you tell them a little bit more about that? Yeah. So if you so commit action is uh, is here. If you're looking, if you would like to add a layer of accountability to your lives. Um, come check us out at commitaction.com. We do, um, as a thanks for having me on the show, we wanted to throw out uh, a $100 discount on the first month of membership. So Commit Action is a, is a, it's a monthly membership where you get this accountability coach, a dedicated coach on your team. They work with you every single week um, to plan out your, the next seven days, figure out the high leverage stuff that you know that you should be prioritizing. Build out that tactical execution plan, and then they'll check in with you throughout the week via text message, email, that sort of thing, to keep you on track and in the zone at all times before meeting you again to debrief and do it all over again. So it's a weekly ritual that you can kind of install in your life and business overnight by joining us, and then reap the rewards of, of just transforming yourself into this accountability leveraged execution powerhouse the uh the coupon code is creative 100 100 creative 100 and it works till the end of may 2021 um it gives you a hundred dollar discount on the first month of membership so so come try it out like try on adding pro accountability to your to your business and to your life and um we have all sorts of extra benefits um to membership we do webinars uh like educational webinars where i dive deep into business psychology and that kind of fun stuff every month in may uh we've got one coming up the creative execution workshop it's got the word creative in it so i figured I'd, i had to mention it on this podcast and it's how to turn yourself into an ideas and action powerhouse so we're talking about like how do you iterate and rapidly come up with new concepts and 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 growth opportunities to test in a business everything we do is is based and rooted in empirical science. Our whole coaching methodology was developed, um, you know, in partnership with a science advisory board we built um, with a neuroscientist from Harvard, a professor of neuroscientist science at Harvard Medical School, a professor of positive psychology at NYU. And we really bring that evidence-based approach to everything that we do and, and talk about and share with the members at Commit Action. So yeah, creative 100, $100 off the first month. Come check out commitaction.com. Amazing. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What do I think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think, uh, I think originality. I think it's when somebody, when, when you meet somebody who's doing something genuinely novel and new, I guess I'm answering this question by using the other word in your, uh, in your in your title here, unmistakable creative. But I think it I think the root of of that that sensation when you connect with somebody is like if you can see the creativity, if you raise your eyebrows because you're like, wow, I never heard of anything like that before. Um, that's where it comes from. So I hope I've done that for your listeners today Amazing. by telling um, them well, about. <laughs> Yeah, this has been absolutely fantastic. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom and your story and your insights with our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's been great. Absolutely. My pleasure. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.